Welcome. This is Jessica Ortner, and our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going on a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. One of the reasons that we are all here is because of the sun. If it was a little bit further away from Earth or just a little bit closer, life wouldn't exist. It's because of the sun that we are here and why we see culture after culture worshiping the sun, honoring the sun. But in this day and age, we're inside a lot. We're in front of our computers, we're in front of our phones, and we probably aren't thinking much about the sun. Are we making a mistake? We sure are. We're going to dive in to understand the sun and how to form a good relationship with the sun to really benefit our mental and our physical health. To lead the way, we are speaking to a fascinating woman, Linda Geddes. She's a London-based journalist writing about biology, medicine, and technology. She has worked as both a news editor and reporter for New Scientist magazine, and she has received numerous awards for her journalism including the Association of British Science Writers Award for Best Investigative Journalism. This interview is just bursting with cutting-edge science and eye-opening advice. Her newest book is called Chasing the Sun. I haven't read a book like this in a long time. It was so fascinating to read a book by a journalist, someone who's really investigating and doing the research. And she shares some of her brilliant stories within this interview. I know that you're going to really enjoy it. I also realized that I am more obsessed with this topic than I have even admitted to myself. As we were going on in this interview, I started sharing stories and it made me realize, wow, yeah, I really do think about the sun and I think about light a lot. There is a lot of new research coming out about how light impacts us. And it's it's pretty huge. And it's something that most of us don't think about. We don't learn about it in school. It's not part of our conversation. uh, And it really should be. So I loved this because I got to dive deep into a topic that really interests me, which I know is going to help you. Not only is this interesting, but it's going to help your quality of life. And this is what Adventures in Happiness is all about. So real quick, have you downloaded the Tapping Solution app? Go on, go to the App Store and download the Tapping Solution app. It's absolutely free. And with every download, you get 10 free tapping meditations, including my very favorite, which is tapping to release anxiety. Use it, share it, and enjoy. So guys, without any further ado, here's Linda. Linda, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, I had just finished reading your book last night, but I have to give you a little bit about a little background about why I'm just obsessed about this topic and why when your publicist reached out, I said yes, within five minutes of getting the email. For the last year or so, I have been obsessed with light, with sunlight, with blue light, with the red light, the way that it impacts us. And it's mostly because I get the chance to interview a lot of different health experts and doctors, and I just keep hearing so much about taking a closer look around how light impacts us. Um, You know, to the point that when I was struggling to get pregnant, I was reaching out for help, and I had, you know, Dave Asprey, who's an author of many health books, he said to me, you know, walk in the sunlight without sunglasses. I, I had no idea what that meant, but I was like, okay, I'll do, I'll do whatever. He gave me a few <laughs> suggestions. That was one. I now have a 10-month-old. I keep reading books about health and all the latest research talks about getting your baby into the sun. But then there's this, this other side, which I was talking to a girlfriend who has skin cancer in her family and they're very pale. And, and I could tell that just talking about the sun causes this sense of fear And it made me start to think about how we have in our culture a very confusing relationship with the sun. In one sense, we know it's good for us, but in another sense, we fear it. So here I am kind of thinking this to myself, and then I get an email about this incredible researcher who wrote a book all about our relationship with the sun, and that's you. So I'm so happy that you kind of came into my life at this moment when I have all of these questions. 
Well, I mean, you know, I've obviously been having the same thoughts as you because, you know, we, we have a really altered relationship with light and particularly sunlight in the modern world. Um, you know, our ancestors revered the sun as this kind of both this this creator and destroyer of life, actually. So there's always been this kind of jewel edged sword when it comes to the sun. And you're right. On, on the one hand, you know, too much of it is definitely bad for us. And I certainly wouldn't advocate that people should be going out and, you know, baking themselves in the sun and getting sunburn, particularly if they have, you know, pale skin types like I do. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we're now spending about 90% of our lives shut away indoors. And that's very, very, and also, and also spending our evenings bathed in artificial light. And that's a really very different kind of environment to the one we evolved on, on this rotating planet of ours with its, you know, 24 hour cycle of light and darkness. Yes. Oh, that's something I found interesting because I opened up your book and I was expecting to just read about what happens the moment sun hits your skin. You know, what, what, what does sun do to your body, which you cover that, but it's so much more complex when it comes to just the, the rhythm, not only sun touching our skin, but using our eyes, what happens when we look at sun and the impact sun has. So can you, you know, you start off with talking about staying with an Amish family and I'd love to start there and what you learned from that experience. Yeah, sure. So, so, well, let's just backpedal a bit. So you talked about the skin. And I think when 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 we talk about sunlight, and the effects of sunlight on our body, most people think about vitamin D, and they think about yeah. skin cancer. And, you know, even in the area of skin science and sunlight, there's a lot happening there. But then there's this whole air, other area, which is around sleep and circadian rhythms. And circadian rhythms are these 24 hour oscillations in the activity of pretty much every biological process from, you know, when we feel sleepy and awake to our brain chemistry, to when we release various hormones, to the activity of our immune cells. So pretty much everything is under the control of these 24-hour rhythms, these, these circadian rhythms. Um, and those rhythms are generated within within all our cells but the way they are kind of kept synchronized with the outside world with what's going on in our environment and you know um, and basically the rising and setting of the sun um is through the impact of light hitting this subset of cells at the back of the eye and then they speak to this master clock in our brains called the suprachiasmatic nucleus um, and that that then sends signals to all these other clocks around our bodies keeping them on time with what's going on in the wider world. So, you know, historically, we, like I said, we evolved on this rotating planet with this 24-hour light dark cycle. And now our relationship with that cycle is altered because we have artificial light. And that, you know, lightens our evenings. And it also makes it a lot easier for us to, you know, work and spend our daytimes indoors. So I was really interested in what impacts that might be having on us. And so I was like, well, I wonder what circadian rhythms and, you know, particularly sleep looks like, because sleep is under the control of circadian rhythms. I wonder what this looks like in a population of people that doesn't have electric light. Um, and so I, you know, I'm a, I'm a science journalist and I, I, my kind of modus operandi is to kind of dig into the, the medical literature and find studies and find scientists who research this stuff. And first of all, I came across these really interesting studies about, um, about, about basically about tribes living in Africa or South America. And, and with them, you find that um, they don't go to bed as soon as the sun sets, but they do go to bed far earlier than most Westerners do in the modern world. And they also tend to get up just before dawn or around the time of dawn. But most of these tribes live quite near the equator where, you know, day and night are pretty much the same length all year round. Mm. Uh, and I really became kind of a bit obsessed, actually, <laughs> with, with trying to find out, well, you know, is there a population at a kind of higher latitude like the UK or the kind of more northerly parts of the US um, where they also don't have access to sunlight. And then I eventually stumbled upon a couple of papers by an American researcher called Theodore Postolake, who um, 
who has been studying the Old Order Amish who live in rural Pennsylvania. And the Amish are interesting because they are not connected to the electric grid. Um, and so their evenings are a lot darker than most US households. Um, and they also spend a lot more of their daytime outdoors. So a lot of Amish men still work in agriculture and the women have quite traditional roles at home, but they all tend these really big vegetable patches in their gardens. And so they, they spend a lot more of their daytimes outdoors. And also they, they can't drive cars um, and they tend to live very close. They tend to work very close to home. So they also, you know, if they're going out to work, they tend to walk there or they ride about on these big push along scooters. So they're outdoors a lot more. And then in the evenings, they don't have electric light. Um, what they use instead is gas light. And they their, their homes are pretty dark still. So I um, I went and stayed with an Amish family in Pennsylvania, um, which was fascinating. Um, and in that family, you know, it was a big house, a big modern house. So it was also, you know, very different to these kind of studies of tribes in that Amish families live pretty much like ordinary Americans, apart from a few things. But, you know, they live in big homes. You know, they have heating. They have comfortable beds. The big difference, apart from the religion side of things, is the light exposure. So they, you know, in this household, it was a big house. Um, they had one gas light on wheels, which they used in the kitchen. And then when they were done in the kitchen, you know, that, that would that would light up their whole kitchen for cooking, but also eating by. And then when they were done there, they'd go through to the, you know, to the living room and they'd just wheel this light with them. And then the family would use this one light to read or do whatever they were doing in the evenings. So I was really fascinated by well, what impact does that have on their, you know, on their, on when they go to sleep and wake up. And what I found was that, um, you know, with, within this family, and I also kind of followed them around, it was Memorial Day weekend, and I kind of followed them around <laughs> for the weekend, asking lots of other Amish people, you know, when do you go to sleep? When do you like to wake up? What sort of light do you have in your home? Um, do you use alarm clocks? And and what I found, um, and this is supported by Theodor Postolaki's work as well, is that Amish people go to bed early and they wake up early. So this family I stayed with, you know, they were it was it was it was May, and um, they were going to bed at like. 9 p.m. And they said in winter, it's more like 8.30 p.m. And then, you know, it's completely normal for them to get up at 4.30 a.m., uh, 4.45 a.m. And they tend to be out of the house by 5 a.m. So, you know, it was Memorial Day weekend. And the family I said with with were like, there's going to be loads of yard sales. Let's, I'd like to go and see some yard sales and buy stuff. Um, do you, if you want to come with us, that's fine. But you're going to have to get up early. And I was like, that's fine, because I've got really bad jet lag. I'd just flown there from the UK. Um, so, you know, 4.30 a.m. was kind of 9.30 a.m. my time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, you know, it was really, really interesting to, to be out of the house at 5 a.m. and going to these yard sales. And the whole of Amish society was out and busy and lighting barbecues and doing stuff when, you know, all the other Americans were still asleep. And then, you know, even if you interview other Amish people, you you know, I, I came across this one woman called Katie Baylor who claimed that she was a night owl. She's an Amish night owl. So I was like, so what does that mean? You know, what does that look like? What when would you like to go to bed? She said, you know, 10 p.m. I know that's really, really late. <laughs> and then I said, you know, OK, so when would you ideally like to wake up in the mornings? And she said 6 a.m. So, you know, that that is early by most Western standards. And yet she perceives that as late because the Amish are so much earlier in everything they do. Right. And what was interesting is, do they have, is insomnia a problem? Because when I was reading your book, I don't think it was the part about the Amish. I think it was when you were with like Northern cultures um, or societies that there's certain places that insomnia there's no word for ins obviously these Amish oh, yeah. speak English, but there's there's certain cultures where there's no word for insomnia, and those are the cultures who also have this rhythm of either going to sleep earlier and just having a better relationship with light. Yeah, so so 
nobody has studied that in the Amish, to my knowledge. Um, I mean, the family I spoke to, they don't have any sleep problems, but that's just a, you know, that's just one family. Um, but that, the thing you're referring to there is these studies of of of, um, of tribes living in Africa and places like Bolivia. And there they tend to have, they seem to have lower rates of insomnia or they, you know, they don't even know what this thing insomnia is. But, you know, this... Um, this is kind of supported by some other research. So, so there's there's several studies now that have suggested that if you spend a greater proportion of your daytime outdoors and get more daylight, that you sleep better the following night. So you um, you tend to fall asleep faster, and you um, you get more deep sleep and less broken and fragmented sleep. And even if you do wake up in the night, um, the next day, people who've had a lot of this bright daylight exposure, they don't seem so bothered by it. They don't feel quite as, you know, worn down and tired as you might normally do if you have had a broken night's sleep. So there is some quite good evidence now that getting more daylight exposure will improve the quality of your sleep. Um, and Probably that has something to do with, you know, you have these circadian rhythms. And so what's happening when you get lots of daylight and particularly bright early morning light, it does two things. One thing is that it it advances your clock. So it makes you more of an early bird, which is what we're seeing with the Amish, right? So they, they're getting up early. They're seeing bright light in the morning. That's pushing their clocks. You know, that's keeping them early. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it also bright light in the daytime and and having it dark at night also increases the amplitude of those circadian rhythms so it makes those kind of peaks and troughs higher and lower or more pronounced um and and if you and quite often if you see people who you know like um people living in care homes or hospitals you see that their circadian rhythms flatten and that flattening of the circadian rhythm is associated with more kind of sleepiness in the daytime and sleep disturbance at night so probably when you're getting lots of daylight and you're keeping things dark in the evening you're getting this strengthening of the amplitude of the circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. And then your, you know, nighttime is for sleeping. Your body's like, okay, it's nighttime. It really is nighttime. I'm sleeping. And daytime, you're more alert. Yes. I had a a friend tell me this years ago, and I've adapted it, that she would just look at the sun. And as the sun would go down, she would naturally begin to dim the lights in her own house. And so it wasn't Mm -hmm. that she was in in pitch black, but it's so easy in this modern world. I mean, especially I have like a a pretty new house. If I turn all the lights on, it is like the middle of the day at nine o'clock at night. And sometimes it happens by accident. You know, sometimes I look around, I go, whoa, like it's, it's bright. And so I try to make the effort of just having a few lights on and man, does it make a difference also with just your, with your overall mood? I find it so much more comforting and nicer at night, but it's kind of a nice habit or something to be aware of, of how can we begin to mimic this natural rhythm, mimic the sun um, within our own house without being the Amish and only having that one gas lamp, you know, finding that middle ground. And I'm curious for you, do do you do something similar for yourself? Yeah, well, um, so particularly in modern homes um we we tend to you know be fitting modern homes with these very bright kind of whitish blue led light bulbs and often lots of them like particularly bathrooms and kitchen lights are very very bright and very kind of whitish blue and this circadian system is particularly sensitive to that kind of blue wavelength light um and it doesn't have to like look blue but that kind of really bright white light Mm -hmm. contains a lot of blue even though it looks white um so yeah so i um when i was doing the research for the book i actually did an experiment on myself and my own family um working with some researchers at the university of surrey here in the uk and I did exactly that, actually. So so I did it in December and early January. And here I live in Bristol in the southwest of the UK. And here in like January, December, January, it's getting dark at about 4 p.m. And it doesn't get light in the mornings until about 8, p- 8 a.m. Um, but I, you know, I work at a computer all day long. So so I it wasn't really practical for me to turn the lights off as soon as 
we got to like 4 p.m. Right. But what I did do was was I kind of went, I kind of had a curfew. So I went, okay, from 6 p.m. I'm going to turn off. In my case, I went really extreme. I was like, I'm going to try living without electric light, which basically meant I'm going to use candles. Um, and I'm going to see whether that makes any impact on my sleep or alertness or mood. Um, but I also did, so I, so I had some weeks where I did that. So I went cold turkey on artificial light after 6 p.m. And then I did another week where I combined that with getting out a lot more in the daytime. So any exercise I did, I did outside. Um, I did a lot of kind of lurking about in parks with cups of tea, you know, making lists and any kind of work that I could do outside, like telephone interviews or, you know, kind of just thinking and and making lists I do outdoors. Um, and just, you know, eating lunch outside, eating breakfast outside if it wasn't raining. Um, and then the whole way through, I was collecting data. I was wearing this thing called an, um, an actor watch on my wrist, which collected kind of light data and also movement data, which you can use to infer when when I was falling asleep and waking up. Um, and then before going to bed each night and upon waking up each morning, I was filling in this whole like load of questionnaires on my sleep and my mood and my alertness. And we were interested to see if living like this in this kind of more traditional pattern um, would have any impact on these things. And what we found actually was that on the weeks when I turned off the lights in the evening, but also on the weeks where I got out more in the daytime, and if we combined those two things, um, what we found was that my circadian rhythms, these, you know, these 24 hour rhythms shifted between one and a half and two hours earlier. And the way we measured that was that once a week I would I would basically spit into a tube every couple of hours and then send them off to a lab. And they were looking for um, this hormone called melatonin, which is a hormone that all of us release um, as as the nighttime approaches. It's like it's basically our body's way. It's like our body clock's way of saying, hey, nighttime's approaching. You need to switch tasks. You need to, you know, all you clocks all around the body, you need to start doing these things that you you do at nighttime. Um, and what we saw was that when I started releasing this hormone, it started happening a couple of hours earlier. But I was also feeling sleepier in the evenings. Um, I didn't always go to bed earlier because it was December and the run up to Christmas. So we had lots of guests and actually lots of people were really curious to come and visit and see what it was like to live yeah. in the dark. <laughs> um, but but I was definitely feeling sleepier. Um, and actually, my bedtime on average was about 35 minutes earlier. I think if I'd done it at a different time of year, it prob I probably would have been going to bed like maybe an hour or maybe an hour earlier, um, and getting more sleep as a result. But the other interesting thing was that when I woke up in the morning, I mean, I have fairly young kids, and they come bouncing in at 7.30am on the dot every morning without an alarm clock. Um, and and I, what I was noticing was that usually when they came in, they would, you know, wake me up, they would be my alarm clock. But while I was living like this, I was, and then and fitting with this idea that my, you know, my circadian clock was earlier, I was waking up before they were coming in. And I wasn't just waking up, I was waking up feeling great. I was, you know, like, my eyes were open, I felt alert, mm -hmm. and kind of ready to start the day. And I also just felt like more cheerful, more positive, which was reflected in these in these kind of mood questionnaires. So, you know, I think I think that just goes to show, and there, actually there, there have been some American studies which have involved sending ordinary ordinary people camping for a couple of days or a week. And they've also shown that, you know, if, if you're living in a kind of camping environment where you're exposed to more bright light in the daytime and less, um, less bright light at night, that um, that you also see this shift to earlier timing. Um, I don't think it means that we have to live by candlelight the whole time, though. I mean, it's actually it's actually deeply um, inefficient. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's for sure. 
not to mention a little bit dangerous, you know, like things like cooking, chopping onions is, you know, outright hazardous. Right. <laughs> and then there's you know, the fire risk and then the air pollution from all the candle fumes. Um, but, you know, I think you can achieve a very similar effect by turning off your ceiling lights and using table lamps instead. And really, when people are thinking about how to light their homes in the evenings, I think we need to think about, you know, how do people used to live? What, you know, humans have evolved, you know, for, for millennia, humans have had firelight. And that was really firelight, candles, paraffin lamps, whale oil lamps. They were, so you need to be thinking, you know, kind of warm, dim light, like, you know, that kind of orangey yellow candle light and not that kind of bright, harsh white blue that you get from modern light fittings. Yeah. And actually, you know, now you can get these smart light bulbs as well, which you, which you can, you know, you can control and dim and you can change the color of them during the daytime and the nighttime. And I think they're a great thing as well. Yeah. Um, You you can use blue blocking glasses. There's lots of things that you can do. You don't have to go back to, you know, you don't have to go back to the dark ages. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And what, what I take away from this as well is there's so many people who say, I really would like to go to bed early, but then when it becomes the evening, they just really struggle. And they say like, I I know I, I want to go to bed early, but I just feel like I can't. And we're realizing, well, there's a reason why you can't, because if you're looking at all this blue light and if your house is really bright, it's, it's difficult. So by hearing about this research and about your own experience, I think it also teaches us that we can set things up in our own lives to make these healthier habits easier. So it's not that we're forcing ourselves to go to sleep early. You're showing us that your body naturally wants to do it when it's in that type of environment. Yeah, that's right. So this this hormone melatonin that we, you know, we release on the on the approach to bedtime and nighttime, it's doing two things. So it's, you know, it's, it's telling our clocks it's nighttime, uh, but it's also, um, it's also bright. So bright light also suppresses the release of melatonin. So, you know, if you have your lights on full, even if you are releasing this hormone, um, and it also signals to the, you know, the sleep centers in the brain, even if you are releasing this hormone, if if you've got a light, a lot of light in your house, it's going to be suppressing the release of this hormone. So you're not getting that sleep signal. Um, and then bright light also directly signals to other areas of the brain that are involved with, in alertness. So, um, you know, bright light is a kind of a brain stimulant in its own right. Um, and that's, you know, that's a bad thing if you're exposed to it at night, because you're overriding these sleep signals, you're feeling alert, you know, it's like drinking coffee, just before you go to bed, you're, you're feeling alert, um, even though it is time to go to bed. But then on the other hand, you know, if you're if you if you get lots of bright light during the daytime, that's a great thing because it's, you know, in the morning, it's suppressing any melatonin that might still be in your body. So, you know, suppressing that sort of sleepiness. Um, but then it's also, you know, waking you up. Um, so I, one thing I like to do is make sure I get outside at lunchtime um, because after lunch, you get this kind of dip in your alertness and you can kind of combat that by getting out and getting some bright light. And there's no, you know, you can you can try and light your office or wherever you work better using artificial light. But it's extremely, you know, the sun and sunlight and daylight is, you know, orders of magnitude brighter than any artificial light is even, you know, I'm sitting in Bristol today and it's like a clear blue sky and the sun's out. And if I go outside, so so illuminance or brightness is measured in this unit called lux. If I go outside now, um, it's about probably about 80 to 100,000 lux outside. In my office, it's probably about 300 lux. And, you know, it seems fairly bright in here. I can see everything, but it's just way, way brighter outside. Yes, Yeah. So I would like to kind of switch a little bit because I want to talk about the impact of sunlight and our health and kind of loop back to what we were talking about in the very beginning, how culturally we have this very uh, difficult relationship with sun in the sense that there's a lot of confusion. There is something that I found really interesting in your book, and I'd like you to correct me if I'm I'm wrong because this is completely from my memory is you were saying or there is research showing that people who struggle who get for example melatonin who get skin cancer because of an exposure of too much sunlight tend to be those who binge 
with the sunlight. So they're inside all day and then they spend a, a whole weekend outside in the sun. But then those who constantly get sun and they might get sun a lot more than the other person are less likely to get that cancer. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so mel- well, it depends what type of skin cancer you're talking about, but melanoma. Did I say the, melatonin you know, just now? I think I said, I, did I say I melanoma? <laughs> I hope I said it right. Anyway, yes. Go I ahead. know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> so melanoma, the really, you know, really deadly form of skin cancer um, does seem to be more, um, more prevalent in in these people who binge bathe. So, you know, like office workers who stay indoors and then the weekends they go out, they lie on the beach, they get sunburned. Um, there are other kinds of skin cancer like basal cell carcinoma, um, which can also be deadly, but they tend to be less deadly. Um, and and actually, actually with basal cell carcinoma, um, Overall, the, if you if you get a basal cell carcinoma, I've been told your life expectancy is actually is actually higher, and it could be because um, and sorry, basal cell carcinoma is more common in you know out, outdoor workers, so people who are exposed to a lot of sunlight but consistently, and so their skin has possibly adapted to it. Um, so there, there have been these really this really interesting study recently, which which found that actually people who have the highest sun exposure um, have higher life expectancy than people who have the lowest sun exposure. And that's probably to do with um, some of these other effects of sunlight on your skin. So obviously, you know, there's, there's a risk. There's obviously a risk there because in some people, if they're exposed to a lot of sunlight and they get a lot of sunburn, they're going to get melanoma. But then there are these other kind of beneficial effects of sunlight on the skin. So for one thing, um, sunlight suppresses the activity or it tweaks the activity of immune cells that are living in our skin. And then they can kind of pass that message on to immune cells elsewhere in the body. Um, Now, if you get too much sun exposure, like one re- so with skin cancer, one reason we get skin cancer is because UV light and sunlight causes these mutations in our DNA. It causes our our DNA to kind of malfunction, and over time that can that can lead to tumor growth. Um, but another reason why we get skin cancer is because the sun and the UV light actually suppresses the activity of the immune cells, which are looking out for these damaged cells and, and would usually destroy them. But there, there are some other conditions which are associated with um, living at a high latitude where you get less sunlight. And one of them is multiple sclerosis, which is this autoimmune disease. And it, it may may well be that in that some sun exposure is is helpful because it basically tweaks the immune system and makes it less reactive and less likely to kind of attack your own body and cause autoimmune diseases. Um, and then there's this other thing which has recently been discovered about the impact of sunlight on the skin. And that's that when you get UV light shining on your skin cells, you release this substance called nitric oxide, which causes your blood vessels to relax and dilate or become wider. And that causes this drop in blood pressure. Now, it's been seen for a long time that actually people's blood pressure overall is lower in summer than it is in winter. Um, And people have thought maybe this is to do with the heat. Um, But recent evidence suggests that it may well be to do with this nitric oxide release. Um, And so possibly this reason for the increased life expectancy among people who have more sun exposure is to do with that impact on our cardiovascular system. So, you know, if you if you're getting this lowering of blood pressure, then that's going to reduce your risk for all sorts of, you know, cardiovascular diseases. It's so interesting. So with the research that you've reviewed and, um, you know, and with writing this book, how has your relationship with your sun exposure changed, especially in the sense of um, maybe your lifestyle before. So when it comes to going to the beach or being outside, do you feel like you found a time that's good for you? Do you still feel like you limit sun at a certain point or do you realize that you're getting a lot more sun than you ever did before? 
I think it's actually I, I think I'm actually more more cautious um, about my son about my son exposure to some degree. I mean, I I, I think I have more reverence for the sun. Mm. Um, I what I so so what I do in terms of sun protection, and I do the same for my kids. Is you know if I know that I'm going to be outdoors all day in the sun, there's no question about it. I will cover up my skin with clothing. I'll put sunscreen on, and wear a hat. But if I'm you know, if it's if it's a case of, well, I'm going to go on a picnic or something or go to the park for the afternoon, I won't do it when we, you know, I won't leave. I won't do all that stuff before I leave the house. I will kind of walk to the park, which is, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes away, not wearing any sunscreen. Um, and then when I get there, the first thing I do is I'll set up camp under a tree um, so we get some shade and then I'll put sun cream and layers on then. So, you know, I think the thing about we haven't really talked about vitamin D, but I think the thing about yeah. all of this is that we don't need that much sun, direct sunlight to get these positive effects on our skin. You know, kind of little and often is probably enough. And we certainly don't need enough um, enough sun that would cause us to get sunburn. So I avoid sunburn at all costs. I have quite fair skin. Um, every summer we go down to the south of France where the sunlight is extremely intense. And actually there, everything I just said about not putting on sunscreen until I get to where I'm going is different because there I know that if I'm outside for even like five minutes, I'll start to burn. So, you know, I, I just I basically avoid sunburn at all costs and I, I avoid my kids getting sunburn at all costs. Um, but otherwise, you know, in terms of the the stuff I was saying about the circadian rhythms, you don't need to be in direct sunlight to get that kind of increased brightness from being outdoors. You know, you can be under a tree and it's still a whole lot brighter than it would be indoors. Um, and with that, so there's a kind of different. So, so actually, to make to make vitamin D, the best time to make vitamin D is around lunchtime. Um, but then that's when the sun's the strongest, and therefore you're, you can burn. So, so there again, you know, I think you need. I, I mean, my my rule really is little and often. So, you know, I I exercise outdoors still, um, but I tend to do that, you know, first thing in the morning usually, um, and then I will try and get outdoors at lunchtime go for a walk around the block, sit under a tree and eat my lunch. But again, just avoid getting burnt. Yeah. Yeah. It's something I've done with, with Enzo, my baby. I had read the, that the best time for vitamin D is at noon. So this whole summer when I can, I would just get him naked for 10 minutes and that's yeah. it. Like we would just be in the sun for 10 minutes and then, then I'd cover him up again. Um, yeah. and it seems like that's, that is what I've been reading as well. Just the importance of, of little and often. One thing I'm curious about is, you know, I live in Connecticut. It gets very cold in the winter. We have a lot of snow. We're indoors a lot. And I found, you know, I find that I still, I make an effort to go outside and it does, I do know that it helps my mood, but I'm curious if you are if it is winter and you are completely bundled up, is it still beneficial to be outside in the sun, even if the only thing that only skin that is getting sun is your face? Yes, it is. Um, so, so at high latitudes, and I think Kineska probably counts, um, but I, I don't, I don't know exactly what the latitude is. But certainly in the UK, it, between about October and March, we can't actually make vitamin D in our skin. So. Um, I will take vitamin D supplements over the winter and try and eat lots of oily fish, which also has vitamin D in it. Um, but then you still you've still got that that kind of circadian influence of bright light. And I think we need it more than ever in the winter. Um, and especially if, you, if you've got a lot of snow around, that's you know, that's going to be really bright outside because the light's bouncing off that snow. Um, and, you know, a, a kind of proven way of treating the winter blues is exposure to bright light um, first thing in the morning. Because again, probably because it's suppressing that melatonin that you've been releasing overnight that makes you feel kind of tired and groggy. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also shifting your circadian rhythm earlier. And things like mood, actually mood has a really strong circadian rhythm. So, so your mood tends to be at its very lowest 
um just before you before you wake up in the morning like kind of four or five a.m and then it grows progressively higher throughout the day and then it starts to drop again at night so one thing that is thought to happen with um seasonal affective disorder and the winter blues is that those kind of that that's that's trough in mood shifts a bit later so you're getting it when you're kind of waking up as opposed to before you wake up mm-hmm. um and so you kind of want to push that back and a way to do that is to get out get out into bright light or use a sad light or, or get some form of really bright light in the morning yes you know it's I used that you mentioned that you have small children and I feel like when when you have kids or you're around kids you begin to learn so much because they are already they're so much more in tune with certain things like I see such a difference when I go outside with Enzo yeah. and even in the winter I he was born in October but I found that like when he was really fussy and I would go out and just bundle him up and go outside, he would nap better later and he would just yeah. be in a better mood. And then I realized, wait, I'm in a better mood. And I spent so much more, ever since I've been a mom, I've spent so much more time outside, mainly because I see the way it impacts his mood. And it makes me realize it's impacting my mood. And why haven't I been doing this all along? <laughs> we just get like in this habit of, of being inside and we forget the importance of, of being outside. Yeah, yeah, we do. And so, so my, my, my elder daughter is nine now. And um, it was her birthday the other weekend. And um, we'd been indoors all morning, you know, preparing stuff for her party. And then I said, right, I need to go out to the supermarket now. Her name's Tilly. We need to go out to the supermarket. Um, do you want to come with me? And she was like, <laughs> and I said, come on, let's go out. And so she came with me and we drove to the supermarket. And then it was a really bright, sunny day. And we got outside and she, she went, mum, I feel so much better. Just, I feel so much better <laughs> just being outside. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> I keep telling you. <laughs> but she said, no, I've, I've been feeling really kind of like sleepy all morning. And now I'm outside. I feel, I feel great. I feel really awake. And, you know, I think children are more sensitive to these things. She also, she also notices um, if her, you know, we have like a, we have one of those clocks and I, and I, I, I don't use it now after doing all my research, but, um, but it's one of those clocks that um, that changes color. So at nighttime, it has a kind of blue star on its face. And then when it's time to get up in the morning, it changes to a kind of yellow, yellow sun. Um, and she was complaining, you know, a few years ago that the, the blue light, if she woke up in the night, she was like, I can't I can't sleep because of the light. And I think I think, you know, children are more sensitive to these things. Um, and they're a really good guide for. I think as adults, we kind of become conditioned to our environment. But, yes. you know, children are not so conditioned. And I think they're more just like, oh, yeah, I feel and it's a lot easier to see. You know, there's no hiding when a child's, you know, cheerful or miserable because they really express very, very well. Definitely. <laughs> and so literally, so here she is saying, I can't sleep with this blue light. Then you look at the research that says, oh, blue light impacts your ability to make um, melatonin to sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, those, those kind of, those light clocks, you know, they can be really useful. I mean, you know, it was when, when our kids were younger, it was like the way of getting them to stay in bed until it was time for them to get up, get up in the morning. Um, but you know, blue light at night is not ideal. And even if it's dim blue, you know, it's very, it's, you can put it on a really low setting. So it's really, really dim. Um, and if you measure how bright that light is, you know, it's you kind of go, well, it's sort of questionable about whether that is having an effect or not. And and to my knowledge, no one has kind of done a study of whether these these clocks do impact children's sleep or not. But um, but there is some very recent research was published showing just how much people's sensitivity light varies, varies very much between individuals. And another piece of research suggesting that children and teenagers may be more sensitive to light than adults are. So, you know, I think if you if you notice that your child, if your child is saying the light's keeping me awake, you know, you've really got to pay attention to that. Yeah, there's some and there's something, something to it. Definitely. Yeah. And this. <laughs> yourself as well you know if you yourself feel like if the lights are on you find it hard to sleep well that's telling you (laughs) yeah 
you know, there's a reason why that is. And that, that's telling you, yeah, I'm quite sensitive to this light thing. I need to do something about it. So in our bathroom now, I have one of these little, um, we used to have a dimmer switch on our bathroom lights and then it broke and I was really, really annoyed about it. And our electricians say they can't mend it. So, so, in, so when I go, you know, if I go to the bathroom in the night, rather than turning the lights on, I have one of these little, um, tapping night light you just tap this night light on a yeah. surface and it comes on it's just a really dim light um so you know things like that are important as well right well i will admit that when i go stay in a hotel i bring duct tape with me i know this sounds ridiculous but hotels, well, great idea. <laughs> hotels are so bright they have the tv light they have the alarm clock light they have it's like there's just little lights everywhere yeah. um and i have realized that since becoming more aware of light and light pollution, I've gotten used to being in a really dark room that, yeah, with, with hotels, I find it more difficult to fall asleep. And I realized it was because of all these little lights that were on. So I just bring like a little bit of duct tape and then I just like duct tape over all the little Uh lights. Great. Yeah. When I, when I was doing the research for my book, um, I interviewed this, um, he's he's the, like the chief, um, doctor for, for NASA astronauts, actually, he's called Smith L. Johnson. And he told me that when he travels, he takes around this little like plug-in nightlight, like little plug-in warm colored bulb that he just puts in the bathroom sockets, you know, so he doesn't have to turn on the bright light in the bathroom. Um, yeah. So I think that's great. Duct tape. Yes. Yeah. No, it, that's interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things too. Sometimes we get into a habit of turning the lights on and then we can't, we have trouble falling back asleep and maybe we haven't made that connection that simply by turning on a light in the middle of the night, it can be impacting our ability to fall asleep. I mean, that's what's so interesting about having this conversation. I hope what people take away from our time today is that they just reflect on their own relationship with sunlight and light in general. And when we begin to look closer, we begin to see, oh, this makes me feel better. Oh, this impacts my sleep. You know, it's that, it's that curiosity that we need instead of just the default of doing what is common and normal. Yeah. And another place where, you know, you get light and it's really difficult to control actually is, is aeroplanes. So I've started taking, you know, blue blocking glasses or or very dark sunglasses on aeroplanes because, you know, you go to the bathroom on an aeroplane and you're trying to sleep and then you go in there and, and the, you know, the lights automatically come on when you shut the door and yeah. then you're like, oh, I'm awake now. <laughs> I was trying to sleep. Right. Um, yeah. I, I yeah. had read well, I that that um, melatonin was very important when it came to labor, that you have an increase of melatonin. And then I had also read that about hospital lighting, and you actually addressed this in your book as well, how how sometimes um, hospitals can really take us away from that rhythm because of the light, which can impact healing. So I went through my entire labor, which was 36 hours with my glasses on. And I know nurses would walk in being like, why is she wearing these weird orange <laughs> glasses? But I will tell you that I feel like it made such a difference because the the lights in hospitals are so bright and having those glasses on just was so comforting and calming. So yeah, I labored through like the whole time with these ridiculous <laughs> glasses on only because I had just read you know, the research about this important hormone and how the lights impact it. So I thought, Hey, I might as do well, do everything I can, um, to make it easier. I don't know if it made a physical difference with my labor, but I can tell you it made an emotional difference where I felt calmer. Um, and when I would take them off, the lights just felt really, really intense. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything about melatonin and labor, but, but definitely, you know, (sighs) So like I said earlier that you get this flattening of circadian rhythms in hospital patients and, and also this kind of disruption of the circadian rhythm. Um, and it does seem to be associated with poorer healing. Um, but but then there are some hospitals now that are experimenting with this human centric or circadian lighting where the, you know, the lighting basically is designed to change in intensity and color over the course of the day and the evening. So I visited this hospital in in Copenhagen in Denmark where they'd fitted this lighting on their stroke ward, their stroke recovery ward. So you've got these people who've had strokes and they're in hospital for for you know a few weeks to a month or so. Um 
And one thing you see in stroke patients is that you get like high levels of fatigue or tiredness and also depression. I mean, not just because they've had a stroke, but that, you know, you get this mm. depression. And on the wards where they fitted this circadian lighting, you could see this increase in the amplitude of their circadian rhythms. So their rhythms were becoming stronger. And they also had, they were, they also were less tired and they also had um, lower depression scores compared to the normal wards. So, you know, I really think there's something in this. And, and it's not just the light environment in hospitals. There's quite a lot of drugs, including morphine, can interfere with our circadian rhythms. Um, and then you think about, you know, these poor patients on intensive care units, um, you know, with life-threatening injuries or illnesses. And, you know, the lights are just, you know, people kind of, doctors often assume, well, you know, they're, they're unconscious, so it doesn't matter what the lights like um but then you know i know that i i spoke to some um researchers at a hospital in manchester in the uk and they are desperate to just do this this study which would just involve basically putting um putting a sleep mask onto their patients overnight on the intensive care ward and taking it off during the daytime and they couldn't get the funding for it so even though it kind of makes sense that it might be having an impact and there is some quite good research in animals at least to suggest that you know healing really is badly impaired by having the you know these flattened and disrupted circadian rhythms it's still there's still not a great deal of funding available to just do a really simple intervention like put a sleep mask on someone and see if it improves their recovery right wow well yeah, it makes me think when I went into labor, someone had had told me the importance of bringing a sleep mask because they just don't turn off the lights. Yeah. Um, and so I had a sleep mask in the hospital, which I found to be incredibly helpful. And I tell all my girlfriends, you know, make sure you bring a sleep mask if you go to the hospital. But but it's interesting that the research is there. And this also shows that if we have a family member, God forbid, we're in the hospital to keep this in mind, that how yeah, can we... So you know, best stay with that circadian rhythm and, you know, simply having a sleep mask may make a difference. Having a sleep mask and if it's possible for them to get outside for some of the day, even if it's just to go out into a courtyard and just get a bit of, of sunlight, that that's great. Or, you know, if they really can't get outside, then you can get these, you can, you know, you can get these kind of alertness boosting lights now. And it might be worth using them or a sad light, something to just get some like bright light to them during the daytime. Yes, definitely. Well, Linda, talking to you has also made me realize how I'm more obsessed with light than I thought I was because I'm coming out <laughs> with all these things that I've done that I forgot. And I'm like, oh, yes, I have really been thinking about light a lot. <laughs> um, and a lot of it in my life has just been experimenting and doing what for me seems like common sense, but now you come out with this book that is showing all of this research um, and making me realize it's even more important than I, than I thought it was. So thank you so much for sharing all this, this wisdom. I really enjoyed your book. It's called chasing the sun, how the science of sunlight shapes our bodies and minds. And Linda, where can people pick up this book? Uh, well, it's being released in the US on the 1st of October. So you'll be able to get it in, I guess, in any bookstore or, or on Amazon or, you know, anywhere where you buy your books. Wonderful. Well, Linda, thank you so much for spending time with us. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. <laughs>